Welcome back to Religionless Church, you ecclesial nuts. In this episode, we have Hannah Posh, or Pash, depending on what side of the family you end up being on. Uh, for those who are on the Posh side, that's what she prefers. So let's go with that. Hannah and I talk about the Enneagram, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with. She's actually writing a book about the Enneagram. So be on the lookout for that. We talk about that a little bit. And we talk about the Church 2 movement, which she and a friend, Emily, were kind of co-conspirators on. So we talk about that as well. And we talk about a lot of her sort of spiritual history and what she's kind of doing in the world on Twitter and kind of the space that she's making on her platform on Twitter. So... I hope you enjoy Hannah and I's conversation. She's just the best. I mean, you'll hear it throughout the whole episode. She is just off the wall, hilarious, and just full of snark and sarcasm. I mean, I I hope that I matched it, but, but there's a really good chance that I, even I, Mason Meniga, can't even match the snark and sarcasm of Hannah Posh. We also have the great great band featured throughout this episode and they're called bear success they're a kind of progressive post-rock band out of new york and so i talked to their guitarist alex about their recent ep and some of their future projects that they're working on so be sure to check out both hannah's work and bear success's work you can find those links for their work down below in the description And that also always reminds me, you should click on my link down below too. See what I'm up to. Get connected with me on Twitter and on Facebook and on Instagram. I know you definitely want to see some of those selfies and really cool, cute Instagram stories of baby Nelson. It's not my child. Baby Nelson is not my child. Let me reiterate. Baby Nelson is not my child, but he is the cutest. And of course, you always want to see cute Instagram baby stories. But I digress. Be sure to click on the link below on my website so you can see some really cool papers and some more podcasts. And be sure to subscribe on there. You can click on the little connect tab and it's pretty obvious where you can subscribe. And as always, if you're one of those Apple podcast people, give us a review. I would love to hear what you have to say about Religionless Church. And without further ado... Here it is, Religionless Church. Today we have Hannah Posh, which some of her relatives go by Pash. So uh, that was just something I learned. So uh, I'm assuming both uh, pronunciations are correct, uh, but you prefer Posh. I do. I do. So, so we have Hannah Posh, and and Hannah is well known as the anti Beverly of the Twitter world. She's the <laughs> Enneagram Four in residence on Twitter, mm-hmm. uh, and she is full of snark. So, <laughs> so Hannah is is all of those things and more, way more than just those things. Uh, <laughs> so I want to hear uh, from you f- first. Who is Hannah Posh? Posh. Who is Hannah Posh to Hannah Posh? <laughs> That's an Enneagram-loaded oh, question. That, that is, wow, yes. That is a very forged question, and I appreciate it. Um, 
Well, as you said, I'm Hannah Posh. I am, um, I am many things. I, I enjoy, um, I enjoy kind of harping on the things that I have failed at because I think it mm. sort of gives you, um, an idea of where I come from. I'm a seminary dropout. Um, mm. I'm an ex missionary kid. Um, I'm an ex missionary. Um, I, I'm a failed rock and roll singer <laughs> and, um, currently, uh, in, in, you know, just the, your average ex evangelical blogger mm-hmm. on the internet throwing my opinions around, but, um, yeah, those are kind of, and, and I'm a social worker. I'm a housing advocate oh. for folks with, um, uh, with HIV diagnoses. Mm. So, um, yeah, I have. I wear a lot of hats currently. Totally. But, um, those are those are my main things at the moment. So let's let's kind of dive into some of those things, uh, just so people have an idea. When I read your tweets, I don't quite get a whole Moody Grad vibe. What's <laughs> what's going on there? What how did how did you go from Moody Grad to what you are now? Well, great question, Mason. <laughs> um, I so I am a Moody dropout, but. From oh, sorry. Moody I grad- I didn't. That was not meant to be an insult. No, no. I'm I'm a Moody dropout. Um, I was in the theological seminary at Moody, oh, okay. and um, I really it, it was an interesting experience. I went in recently graduated from um, Arizona State University here, and I was very involved in the Christian ministries on campus here. And my thought was, I'm going to go to seminary and I'm going to have 2,000 instant friends, right? Like, I'm going <laughs> to move on to this campus in Chicago and we're all going to be besties, kumbaya forever. And um, that is not what happened. Um, I got there and immediately kind of picked up on the vibe that I was very not what was expected of like a, a good moody Christian girl. Hmm. Um, turns out the people at Moody happen to be pretty moody. They're, they're a little moody. Yeah. Uh, well I was moodier probably at the time, (laughs) but, um, you know, I was very flamboyant and expressive and friendly, which red is flirty Mm -hmm. and I, you know, bright colors and red lipstick and all the things I was just like a lot. I've always been very extra and, um, I showed up on campus and that was just not, not what anyone was expecting. Um, which is fine, but I quickly rejected a bunch of, um, moody men. And somehow that made me like the slut in residence. Mm. I don't know how rejecting people makes you slut, but Hey, it's not my, not my logic. So well, um, there's not a lot of logic going on there anyway. No, not so much. Um, so I definitely, it was sort of a trial by fire where um, that that sort of followed me everywhere I went. I felt like I was wearing a scarlet A at all times, and um, 
and I, I fell into a really deep depression. I, I was diagnosed with clinical depression on campus there. And, um, my parents were missionaries overseas at the time and, um, couldn't really help me financially all that much. And so it was just, it was a really, it was a dark space for me. And once I left, I started just reevaluating the ways that I had approached faith, the way that I had approached ministry, um, the way that I had approached um, sexuality and dating as a good Christian girl. And um, and so all of those questions started arising. And mm. thankfully, I had met my um, my co-conspirator, Emily Joy, <laughs> while I was on campus there. And um, we have been, you know, a heretical team ever since. But um, she and I kind of started writing and blogging together and, you know, reimagining what it could be like to be um, a progressive person of faith with um, outside of purity culture, outside mm -hmm. of white supremacy, outside of all those things. So it's been a journey. And obviously, um, I have not in any regard arrived, but that's sort of mm -hmm. what set me on my current trajectory. What what has brought you uh, where you are right now, maybe spiritually or in your faith? Yeah. Um, so I I um, after all of that happened, a few years later, I moved to Nashville mm. and initially to work for a Christian band out there, and um, that quickly fell apart, and I sort of uh, decided to go on my own. Um, trying to make it as a, as a rock band kind of deal mm -hmm. and, um, was very involved in like the Nashville evangelical culture, which if anyone, if anyone has lived there, they know what I'm talking about is, you know, it's, it's its own thing. I'm sorry mm -hmm. about the dogs. Um, <laughs> dogs are always welcome. Okay. <laughs> um, it's definitely its own thing. And, I was really excited to be around all of these other uh, Christians making music and um, quickly just became very um, disillusioned with the ways that um, the the church there seemed to be all about inclusion and yet nothing mm. was ever said from the pulpit about right. anything. And so, you know, behind closed doors, we were welcoming of LGBT people and, um, you know, people of other races and demographics and stuff, but from the pulpit, nothing was ever being said. And wow. at that same time, um, my sister had just come out and that was like a whirlwind for me. Um, and she, you know, she was going through all kinds of, um, being ostracized and being, um, quite physically without a home and without, not only without a church home, but without like a physical home mm. here in Phoenix where I am now. And that for me, I just reached this moment where I was like, I can no longer attend any kind of congregation where folks, where LGBT folks are not like actively welcomed from the pulpit. Like that's not being theologically worked through from in a public way. Mm -hmm. um, and then thankfully I, I got to meet um, some 
some folks out there from a church called Grace Point that mm-hmm. was very um, progressive and, and that was uh, starting to really loudly and actively affirm LGBT people. And that was sort of um, where I started to really reconstruct the ways that I thought about theology of sin and, um, you know, kind of going deeper into mm-hmm. how we could approach the gospel in a more progressive way. So um, that was all very formative for me. So what what community do you sense uh, kind of fosters your spiritual life now? You know, that's hard because um, a lot of my friends like coming out of evangelicalism really have found a space in high church or um, mm-hmm. a lot of my friends are Episcopal. And um, I just have personally never found a home there. I grew up in like mm-hmm. non-denominational mega church situations. And so I just... I don't know. Somehow I've never been able to really um, make that jump. So a lot of a lot of my spiritual community lives online, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's weird to say, but it's very true. Like I have I daily interact with people of faith uh, online, especially through Twitter, um, where I learn theologically. I mean, Honestly, I have received an entire PhD's worth of um, education from yeah. from Twitter, um, which is super weird to say, but I love it. I mean, if you are listening, there is so much wisdom and goodness and knowledge that you can gather in that space. Mm-hmm. And I would say that, that that's where I primarily find my people now. I like I've sensed that too with uh, that for for a lot of people that grew up similar to both you and I in, in that sort of evangelical world and right. kind of have a you know falling out or deconstruction whatever you want to call it they right. they tend to do find uh, something interesting about a sort of high church tradition but there are a <laughs> number of us including me that just can't bring themselves to that and I think. I I have whole theories of why that is uh, that I'm really passionate about. We won't go there, but I, I do, do find that hear interesting. About that at some point, but, I yeah. I would love to talk to you about that at some point, but I want to <laughs> talk to I want you to be the one talking. Okay. So let, let's move on to some of the other work that you're doing. So okay. you're you're totally an Enneagram expert. You're you're <laughs> like you're like Richard Rohr, but like with a better <laughs> wardrobe and far more snark than he has. He's he's way too Franciscan. Uh oh, and you're way hard. too not Franciscan the, with with all the snark that you have. So <laughs> so how how in the world did you find yourself getting deeply involved in the Enneagram? <laughs> um so I actually discovered the Enneagram about a decade ago. Um, wow. One of my friend's ex-boyfriends gave me a book called Personality Types, and it was by Rizzo and Hudson, who are my messiahs of the Enneagram. Mm-hmm. And um, I was instantly obsessed because I have spent my entire life being fascinated with 
people's minds, uh, why they make the decisions that, do, that they do, people's behavior. And so um, for me, it was like, it was like a key. It was like suddenly I could unlock the reasons why not only I made the decisions that I did, but also why the people around me did. And, and it helped me discover an, an insane amount of compassion and empathy for those around me because that question why was getting answered. Mm -hmm. And so I, I got really obsessed with it about 10 years ago, took it to Moody. You know, I typed everybody at Moody. How, how well was that received at Moody? Um, it was well received. I really? mean, everybody was very interested in it. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think the Enneagram has a lot of, um, a lot of what I see about the Enneagram online is very Christian. So I, I think mm -hmm. that it, and I, I think it does have really great spiritual ramifications. So anyway, it was well received there. And I've spent the last 10 years kind of doing the same. I'll make up questionnaires for people <laughs> to answer so I can learn more about them. And um, I've never done like the official Enneagram master certifications or anything, which I feel like I should. I've just never had the money. Mm -hmm. um, and so I've just read everything that I can for the past 10 years about it. And then <laughs> when I moved back out here to Phoenix, when I had like, you know, failed at being a rock star and I was like licking those wounds, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to talk about the Enneagram because that's something I know about and whatever. I'm just going to throw it out on the internet. Mm -hmm. um, and all of a sudden I found <laughs> there were a lot of other nerds who were really into it. <laughs> um, and so that's been that's been a really fun space for me to just kind of connect with people. I love hearing about the way mm. um, other people experience the Enneagram, what it has helped them realize about themselves. So yeah, I, I'm obsessed. In, in like our circles uh, that we tend to r run around mm -hmm. in, it is like the comments, the conversation starter that like a, you know, <laughs> let's say, let's say somebody from South Dakota, they've got like a dead elk head on their, on their, <laughs> Like above their furnace or whatever, like that's what that piece does. That elk head uh, serves <laughs> is totally what the enneagram serves in a lot of the circles that we run oh in. Like my it's gosh, it's totally it's totally like you you say your name and then you say your type and then <laughs> for some reason that just captures all of who you are. I I know, and it shouldn't. I mean, I, I feel a little bit guilty because I think <laughs> that my um, my irreverence online about it has precipitated some um just misunderstanding of the enneagram and, and i'm over here like reading all of the books that the masters have written and they're like you shouldn't engage with the enneagram until you've approached middle age and i'm like <laughs> <laughs> i literally write millennial gram right. um so probably they would not think too highly of me but i i do think and this is something that i will say all day and all night is that um, we have a real, we live in a really interesting time right now. Um, well, really terrifying time, honestly. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think as millennials, I'm really, I'm really impressed with our generation and the ways that, um, we are jumping into activism and jumping into, um, you know, local politics or, um, community services and things like that. Like, we're taking on those things on a broad scale. And um, I think that's great. I think it also lends itself to a lot of burnout mm -hmm. and a lot of um, 
just vicarious traumatization and stuff. And so as a social worker myself, I have seen the ways that the Enneagram can kind of help people put their own oxygen mask on before they like go out into the world Mm -hmm. um, and help them understand themselves and their own limitations and boundaries and uh, motivations also. Um, So, yeah, I think, I think because of the times that we live in, I think it's really key that people of our age are engaging on a, on a deeper scale with like personal growth and, and, doing that on purpose completely yeah i've noticed in in my own life uh so so i'm also a type four uh nice what wing um i'm so okay i'm under the theory (laughs) totally disagree with me i know a number of people that do okay i'm under the theory that you express both wings in different situations so i would say i i express my five wing in very like relaxed comfortable uh situations and then when i'm in a more of a stressed mode or pressured <laughs> mode uh that's when my three wing will come out okay so, interesting i mean that that's my theory I it's think probably it's totally <laughs> lean into both i think um, so i think that yeah i think that they're both there for you to access i would say a lot of people don't like a lot of people hmm maybe maybe don't realize that they have that extra room uh, but i think it's totally possible and i know that for me it's more of like a um different times of my life i access uh different wings more Interesting. um i i definitely always thought i was a four wing five up until the last like year or two when okay. i realized that i'm just extra and always i'm always <laughs> I'm very creative, but I'm always creating for an audience, which I think reads very hmm. three wing. So yeah, yeah, that's interesting because I've I've seen a switch. So I totally had a, a three wing. Uh, okay. I was I was in athletics and and through throughout college too. And so like okay. that that created. I mean, it's just it required that sort of competitive achieving sure. um, side sure, of me. Yeah, and mm-hmm. I I definitely relied on that for a really long time. Um, but I even in in kind of in reflection and so since i've left that part of me um since graduating i i've i've totally started to rely or access more in that five wing but as like huh. as i th- like reflect back the situations that i like felt most me have mm. been when i was accessing the five wing more so than mm-hmm. when i was accessing the three wing so the okay. three wing was totally a facade like I felt pressure being from a small community, a small rural South Dakotan community to like be the jock and be in that world. But like when I was truly myself, I was like the kid that was running around on Wikipedia and (laughs) and doing all that bullshit. So I'm fairly confident that like even as a kid, I was a five wing, but I never felt uh, Mm. I never felt like comfortable or. Be, I, I never felt like I was in a context where that was going to be welcomed. My that like, was okay. five wing. Yeah. So the, the three I, wing was totally you. welcome, especially in that sort of uh, kind of society, that Midwest society of about achieving, pulling yourself by the bootstraps. Right. And so right. That, so th- th- that's kind Midwestern of why boy. I see myself being more of a, maybe like a five wing. Okay. Yeah. I, I mean, you definitely, you read five wing to me, but I, I okay. try not to like, <laughs> I try not to tell other people what their types are because 
It's for your own self-discovery. But that's really interesting to hear. So, yeah, that's that's kind of what I, I'm, I'm sensing. But and yeah, it's real. It's so interesting. And it's been helpful for me to. To reflect back on like as a child, like there were certain things that I felt or experienced um, and it makes sense because I'm a four. Like it makes sense why I was like the kid that would like end up crying uh, if I like lost or if like I didn't feel like I uh, did the best or like a classic story. This is probably a very four thing. So I, I grew up distrusting Mormons as a conservative evangelical mm. person would. And does, in, yeah. in fourth grade, there was a girl. Uh, I hope she's not listening to this story. <laughs> There was a there was a girl in my, in my fourth grade who was Mormon, and I decided that everybody needed to know that Mormons worship Satan. So I took that uh, I took that uh, that job and that responsibility on on myself and yeah. uh, totally a job from God, right? And mm. and decided to tell everybody that. And the next moment, <laughs> I saw her running out of school crying, and I was like, Oh God, what have I done? So it totally got back to her as, you know, as like fourth grade oh, gossip does. Bless her heart. And I, I went, I ran home. I, I only lived a couple blocks away. I ran home and I was bawling because I knew that I had hurt her. And I like totally felt her emotions. And I'm calling my mom for like a good hour on the phone as oh soon as I get God. home. Like, I don't know what I should do. Like, I, I made an ass of myself and. <laughs> what not so anyway i had to i had to swallow my own pride and the next day ended up apologizing to her but like just like all those sort of moments like make sense uh like how emotional absolutely. i was absolutely was and the and the empathy there that like superseded even your like um your ingrained religiosity mm -hmm. you know that you were just like i care more about this person and yeah that's i love that what so, a cute little baby four i was i, I was a total <laughs> baby four i i was a side story before, before i don't want this to be all about me but i do want to <laughs> say it. i i and i was just telling somebody about this today which is weird um i was a weird kid where i didn't watch like a lot of the like kid shows like basically okay. anything after second grade i was already watching like adult shows like remember the show while while you were out or what not to wear on tlc as a second grader i was sitting in my my second grade chair watching those shows like that's that's what i wanted to watch and care about not like not zach and cody or whatever those disney shows were i wanted to watch <laughs> while you were out and what not to wear that's amazing that, that and I got like that, into a lot I thought of the that show stuff was the best. Too. I thought that Stacy and Colin were gonna get married because I didn't <laughs> I didn't understand the whole gay dynamic there at the time. But um that's, that's hilarious. hilarious. Yep. Def a favorite for me too. Being a person on Twitter that completely uh, kind of fosters and, and creates a community for people within the Enneagram world, you also uh -huh. have kind of created a, a place on your Twitter that allows people to process faith um, or lack thereof 
as mm -hmm. in in a sort of safe environment. Uh, yeah. How have you sensed your own spirituality being influenced by Twitter? I know you um, mentioned briefly like a bit ago that like that kind of has been your space now. Uh, yeah. Maybe, yeah. What? How do you feel like your spirituality comes out in your Twitter? I think that. Um... Well, for me, a big thing this year was the um, the church two hashtag mm -hmm. and kind of creating space for survivors of um, assault and sexual abuse in the church. Um, and it's funny because I created that space um, very well. Emily and I created that space. And for me, it w it came from a place of righteous anger. Like I was furious. I just mm -hmm. like wanted to take down. I, I just, I wanted to start a war with um, abusers mm -hmm. essentially. And then as soon as everybody started telling their stories, um, I really started to connect with um, that pastoral side of me Yeah, um, that I... I hadn't experienced in a long time. Um, and I think, you know, I grew up in ministry. My parents were pastors and min missionaries. And um, I spent a lot, I spent all of my formative years in that. And I didn't really ever expect to access that energy again. And it really, for me, um, it felt like a reminder of the Holy Spirit. Um, hmm. I don't, I, I have trouble talking about it because I don't, um, yeah, I have trouble talking about it, but it, but it really felt like all of a sudden I was being reminded of that. I've always been that person that I've always been the person who, um, communes deeply with the Holy spirit and with other people. And that creating that space online was, it really felt like a sacred place for me. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and it continues to, I mean, the, the, the initial like hugeness of that hashtag and that, that campaign has sort of died down. But I think, um, the people that I have connected with because of it, um, are daily changing my life. Mm -hmm. Um, and I created so much space personally between myself and the church to say like, you are over there and I'm over here and I'm a person of faith or whatever, but I don't want anything to do with that, mm -hmm. the institution of the church. And it's, it's so funny that like, after taking that stance, all of a sudden now I'm like, I'm connecting with churches. I'm speaking, <laughs> I'm preaching sermons in pulpits and just like, and, and, and I think I'll always be kind of an independent agent when it comes to church. Like yep. I care deeply for um, church people. Like church folk are my folk. Like I, I care about their well-being, their wholeness. I care about theology and creating um, and you know fostering theology that is not harmful. Mm -hmm. uh, but I can't imagine myself ever being like a pew sitter again. Really, I like I can't imagine that being a part of my life. But um, interacting with and working alongside, um, leaders of faith and, and spiritual communities, both locally, like I've accessed a lot of people here in Phoenix, Arizona and, and all over the country is, has just been, it's been really humbling because I wanted to consider myself different and other 
and what I'm finding is family mm. and that's really exciting. Um, if, if you would like to share what, what you mentioned that you wouldn't ever find yourself being a pew sitter again. Uh-huh. Could you talk more about maybe what, what it is that has, uh, kind of created that in you that you couldn't find yourself being that again? Yeah, I think it's just, I think it's a lot of broken trust. Um, I, so even the progressive communities that I found that were very LGBT affirming, um, I had some experiences where it seemed like there was still this undercurrent of patriarchy. There was still this mm -hmm. sense that um, women and people of color and LGBT folk were um, somehow second tier citizens, mm. e even in even in progressive church right. spaces. Um, and and I know that's not the case everywhere. Actively, I know that, but um, at least for me. Um, protecting myself has has been making that decision to be like I just can't put myself there um anymore mm -hmm. but I I will I will engage with the church until the day I die I just right I can't imagine and you know there's always the people who are like let's start something new let's start like a new let's start a new church together or a new spiritual community or and and you know who knows? Like, I, I'm not, I'm not ruling that out for the future, but I just, mm -hmm. I want to be very careful to not step into the same roles where I was harmed right. um, and where people that I love were harmed. Um, and I don't, you know, I don't want to believe that I have the answers or that I could necessarily do better. Um, so I have sort of felt like serving church people for me has had to come from the sidelines. Um, but I'm 27 years old. Like, what do I know? Right. <laughs> like, um, things could definitely change and I expect to grow and evolve in my understanding there, but mm -hmm. that's just, it's where I'm at now. So today we have Alex from Bear Success, and Bear Success is the band that you've been listening to throughout this episode. And as uh, as I kind of mentioned in the first part of the episode in the intro, Bear Success is a progressive kind of post-rock band. Uh, so yeah, Alex is one of the guitarists, and uh, we're going to chat about some of the music, especially some of this new music that you just released. So what uh, what kind of inspired the name behind uh, the that album title, Dissension? Uh, that's a good question. Um, hmm. I don't, we honestly, like, we don't really come up with, like, meanings. We just kind of, like, think of weird words and just... Mm. I don't know. It was just like a general feeling from the songs. Um, some kind of like grungy, just discordal, if that's a word. Uh, we'll make it a word. Yeah. <laughs> uh, some kind of like chaotic, but I don't know. Not a great explanation. But <laughs> no, that it, it 
I think it really embodies some of that that feeling of the EP of, and, and this is just kind of post rock in general, where uh, like a the words or like the meaning put behind um, that sort of music, post rock music, is less about uh, the meaning that one would put into particular words, right? Because the whole idea of post-rock is that it's wordless. Um, right. And it, it, it's totally embodied and driven by the way it feels. So, you know, like a great example is, is Explosions in the Skies. The Earth is not a cold, dead place. Like, you look at some of those song names, like they're the, they have one uh, Six Days at the Bottom of the Ocean. And when you listen to that album, it feels like, or that song, it feels like you are in a sort of, the bottom of an ocean like it has sure. that watery uh kind of dark watery feel to it so that that's something i love about a lot of post-rock is that uh that it really grabs a hold of one's feeling um and it really i think it works well for a lot of people who are uh who really are driven by their intuition but anyway uh right. what uh what sort of influences went behind the making of of this ep um, at the time, I was listening to a lot of, uh, Ocean Size, um, okay. and what else was I listening to? Oh, what the hell is the band name? <laughs> I can't remember now, but yeah, Ocean Size is like, just like, oh, oh, brother, that's it. Uh, oh, like yeah. a lot of dark and like, they're kind of like grand songs and stuff, just like sludgy rock and just a lot of cinematic stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, a little bit of Radiohead in there, too. Oh, of course. What else kind of uh, influence, maybe maybe like some, maybe you can speak on behalf of some of the other people in the band, uh, of like maybe what they brought into making of this EP? Well, I know uh, Jeff, uh, who's the bassist, he listens to like a lot of classic rock and stuff, and he mm. probably listened to some Yes and uh, Rush and... Uh, some primus in there oh yeah uh, totally hear that. yeah um but uh during that ep recording that um we had a different drummer at the time and i honestly yeah, i don't really know what his influences were <laughs> maybe like <laughs> maybe like some manchester orchestra some mm -hmm. oh <laughs> it's hard to say uh he's doing his own thing now so <laughs> So, uh, any upcoming events or tours that you're looking forward to? Uh, with maybe maybe you're uh, going to be touring on this EP. Uh, any, anything like that that's coming up? Uh, no tours as of yet, but we do have a couple shows in March. Um, I think we have like four or five shows coming up. Uh, but yeah, we definitely want to go out on tour. We're kind of mm -hmm. we have a new drummer now that we're writing constantly with and hoping to put out like another album or something soon okay awesome. a couple songs done uh but yeah i think we're definitely gonna try to do a tour over the spring or summer summer okay um, yeah uh i'm i'm really been digging it as i've kind of been editing sure. through this episode and uh listening uh obviously putting the, the music throughout the episode it, I, I really enjoyed it it's uh it, it's cool. definitely a different sort of post-rock feel than what i typically listen to and uh yeah that that different feel ha has really been wonderful so i think it's something you certainly you all should be really proud of uh it's a really great thanks. piece of art so thank you so much thanks for having me awesome all right thank you alex
So you mentioned a little bit about the hashtag Church2 movement that you and yeah. Emily co-led and curated and founded. Yeah. Uh, can you talk about some of the, you, you mentioned briefly some of the impulse that uh, spurred you to create that. Could you talk a little bit more about that impulse and then kind of the response that you received from that? I, I think that's just the whole thing, uh, just even looking from uh, objectively, it's just, it's it was really great to see what happened. Uh, but I want to hear from like an insider, first person narrative, like kind of the impulse and then kind of from you as a, as a creator, like the reception of it and how you felt as a creator that that felt like. Yeah. Um, so honestly, the thing that it all happened on a whim, I mean, um, Emily texted on like our, our friend group text, um, the night that we launched the hashtag saying, you know, should I out my, high school abuser because all of the allegations against Harvey Weinstein had just come out. And it's, mm. it's mm -hmm. so interesting to me to look back and see that Emily's bravery was fueled by the bravery of these women that came before her. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Emily's bravery became an impetus for so many after her. And it's just, it's really, um, I don't know. It, it, it's really, um, it's really deep and really, um, exciting to see, but, um, you know, my first thought was if you feel safe doing that, you mm -hmm. absolutely should. I mean, um, I don't encourage people to, to come out with a story that they don't feel safe or ready to share. Um, that's not anything that has to be rushed and, um, you have to listen to the wisdom of your body on that. But, um, but she felt ready to do it. So she mm -hmm. did. And I remember she was, I read through the thread and I've known this story since I met Emily. Like that was the first kind of like deep, dark thing that we sort of shared. Cause she had, she had moved to Moody like recently after that whole thing had happened. So she was still processing it. She was mm -hmm. still, you know, believing that she was in the wrong and that it was, um, that it was her fault. And so right. the, those were like conversations that we were having, um, back in 2009 and then, um, so I knew the whole story, but reading it on Twitter, I was walking in to see Lady Bird with my sisters and I was so excited to see this movie. And I just, I couldn't even think about the movie. Like I was so overcome with, um, rage really, right. um, even knowing the story, like, and there are so many others, you know, as soon as I read that, I was like, what, what's mind boggling to me is how usual that kind of story is um and a million other stories came to mind that, that people have shared with me over the years and I was just like Emily we have to create a space for this like we we have to make something and so we just ran back and forth some different ideas and settled on church too and mm -hmm. Emily was like I'm going on a, a retreat with my husband it's our anniversary like I can't think about this take it and run with it or don't. Um, so I did, you know, and at the time I think I had like 1200 Twitter followers or something, you know, expecting like a few people to engage with it. And, right. um, and then by, by as soon as 24 hours had gone by, it had just blown up. Um, mm -hmm. and I knew the stories were out there. I knew that if, if we could get it in front of enough people that they would start talking about right. it, but it was, 
it was still overwhelming to see. And, um, you know, by that next morning it was in time magazine and everything just kind of blew up from there. Um, it's been sobering to see the way that, uh, mainstream media have really, um, have really, you know, taken an interest and written about it. And, Hmm. um, and then Christian publications largely have been, have been fairly silent. Right. Um, I think that's because Emily and I are not the ideal mouthpieces of a movement like that. Um, which is fine. You know, I'm, I'm very comfortable with my, uh, heretical presence, Mm -hmm. but, um, but I, I was, I'm excited to see things come after it. Like the silence is not spiritual campaign. I think that they could have taken that a step further, but I'm, I'm glad that it happened. A lot of really prominent, um, women, Christian authors signed it. And, Mm -hmm. um, I just think that it is, I think it's a continuing struggle. You know, it's not something that can be encompassed in a hashtag. Um, and I see lots of other, um, I've become connected with a lot of other amazing people who are um, actively trying to create spaces in the church that are safe, right. um, both theologically and physically. So it's encouraging to see, mm-hmm. but we have a long ways to go. That's really great. Yeah, I I, I remember just as because I think I was following you before that before church too, and then I think so. Yeah, and I just remember it happening and reading through all of the stories and I, I as a so I, I had no experience with that. Like the, the church that I grew up in, I, I've never experienced uh even like people that I know um okay. at least have have not like told me. Um sure. I'm I'm sure I know people that have experienced those things, they just have not um right. uh, told me those things. Um yeah. But as a person who hasn't experienced that, or at least I know of people that have experienced those that are really close personal friends or family, I I, I just, and to see the influx of that, I couldn't believe how, like, I I had an idea that, like, there there must be, like, that every now and then or something. But I didn't realize, Mm -hmm. like, this is, like, this is just as bad, if not as bad as all these other sectors of society and right. that that was what i couldn't fathom that wow this is this is an issue and like there, we need to take action about how like just even we structure like uh the the sort of people that can help with the children and mm-hmm. the, the, the people that can help with like all these little things that i was like there needs to be totally a overhaul of how we engage with youth because a right. number of them all ha- a number of them happen with when a person was a child or a, a, an adolescent yeah and all of those thoughts were r- rushing through my head I, my the thoughts rushing through my head of uh me as a youth worker and working with with middle school girls and just thinking about like there are girls right now that are that are experiencing these same similar stories that all these people um have now shared with us right that the the girls that i work with the girls that i adore and just think are the 
best. Uh, and I, I love working with them. And I can't believe somebody would do that. Like th that, like those were a lot of the thoughts that were rushing through my head. And, and I've really appreciated some of the conversations that I've had with Salman's porch people, because uh, mm. a number of uh, the women, uh, adult women at Salman's porch, being people that came out of a lot of conservative evangelical circles, experienced similar things. And okay. for them to share a lot of their stories and, um, and, and then they kind of like the offering of like ways that Solomon's porch can be uh, a safer place for people um, and, and the ways that our church community can uh, maybe like par partner or support those that have experienced this trauma. Th th those are a lot of the things that initially came after church to um, kind of blew up and, and became awesome. a huge thing. But that, like those were That's kind so of huge. the initial responses and reflections that I had. So I'm really glad that you shared uh, what, yeah. what your initial uh, thoughts and, and ideas and uh, reflection was. It's really encouraging to hear how it's being engaged um, in, in a direct and like physical way, because I, I would hate for it to just stay a conversation on the Internet, you right. know. Um, and I think what, what Emily and I have been really strong about, because she and I have been writing about and studying and. Uh, researching purity culture for many years, right. um, which I think is a direct correlation to rape oh, culture yeah. in the church. Um, I think that there there both needs to be a physical overhaul in the way that we like provide accountability within the church, you know, background checks and things like that. But then I think we we have to be able to engage theologically and say, is the way that we approach bodies and sexuality and um, interact, you know, any kind of sexual interaction in the church are, is the way that we're approaching that healthy, right. because I think that the, the fruit would say otherwise. Um, mm -hmm. and so I and Emily, I think are both really, um, really adamant that that needs to be an ongoing conversation right. in, in progressive church spaces. I, I also think too, that just the way that so many churches, both uh, in the mainline tradition and the the free church evangelical tradition, the way that they've structured themse themselves, not even like theologically, but just even their like polity, their um, ecclesial structures yeah. have, I think, really contributed to the response like the, or the lack thereof response mm -hmm. of a lot of this abuse, because I from what it seemed like, and, and feel free to disagree, or maybe you have different thoughts, but it seemed like a lot of, a lot of these churches that, um, that a lot of these women and men were experiencing abuse, mm -hmm. they, like those, uh, there were people, there were a certain group of people and leadership at these churches that knew about this. But the, the key is these churches thought, no, we're just going to handle this internally. Right. And that and and so these both in the mainline, the uh, Catholic traditions, whatever it doesn't matter. Like we've created a structure where um, a few select people are in power, and when they have knowledge, they because if they uh, democratize, is that the right word? Democratize. Democratize. Yeah. Democratize. Uh, <laughs> if they democratize that power and start handling. Um, issues like this, uh, like abuse, uh, and democratize that outside to other people within the church community, 
that threatens their power and the power that they hold. And so by having like a huge um, issue like abuse, sexual abuse especially, to have that, that actually provides them so much more power. And then when they handle that internally, it just fuels more and more power for them. So it seems like our yeah. structures have contributed because we have such a like a hierarchical structure. Uh, it seems like that's really played into the perpetuation um, and basically silence for so many years of all the abuse that was happening. Because people knew. It wasn't like people didn't know. People knew. They just were not taking proper uh, action because they were right. handling it internally, which is a great mm -hmm. way for saying we're not handling it at all. Right. But we just, we want you to come to us, the leaders of the church, as, you know, your your authority. You know, we, we want you to treat uh, church leaders like they are somehow you right. know, these divine mouthpieces that um, that should be able to handle everything like that. And you know what? Leaders of the church are not equipped to handle sexual assault and abuse. Right. And, and it's, yeah, it's really heartbreaking to know how many people knew and didn't do anything about it. But honestly, I mean, that's the that's the culture that I grew up in. Mm -hmm. I mean, the leaders of the church were um, basically our our answers for everything. Um, and I don't know if, you know, I don't know if sexual assault was handled in-house um, at the churches mm -hmm. I was involved in growing up, but it definitely, we definitely had the ideology in place. Right. So if something had transpired... I wouldn't have been surprised. Mm -hmm. So, um, and there's very much this sense of like, we need to, oh my God, this, there's this verse that gets so misused and taken out of context about, um, having no appearance of evil. Right. So mm -hmm. we have to, um, we have to maintain this cultural image, um, to the community around us, to the society around us that, that we are, um, above reproach. <laughs> and so um, we have to keep, we have to look good, essentially right. is what that mm -hmm. means. It means maintaining an image. Um, and the idea always made sense. Like, yeah, of course, like we want to look, we want to look good to the, to our community so that we can win more souls for Jesus. Right. But like, <laughs> if we're not being honest, then there's no point. So moving on to some of the projects that you've been working on, uh, you decided to make a more financially secure future by writing a book. Um, <laughs> so tell, tell us about what you hope for those who read it, uh, what they receive from it. What, what are you hoping that they receive? Um, so I, I'm writing an Enneagram book, which is just what the world needs. More um, of. More of. Um, but it's it's in the vein of the the threads that I do. It'll be called Millenniagram or or somewhere something along those lines. Um, and essentially, what I want it to be is I want it to be um, both a gateway drug for my generation and hmm. also a way for um, 
for Enneagram, young Enneagram enthusiasts like myself to be able to um, engage in self-integration in, in a deeper way. So I want it to be both um, an introduction and also um, kind of delve in deeper. But I think you can expect a lot of um, pep talks, a lot of <laughs> affirmations, a lot of ass kickings. Snark. Um, yeah, oh yeah. I mean, of course, Mason. I was going to say, is that can you really put your name <laughs> to a book that doesn't have plenty of snark in it? I no, I absolutely would not. Um, although it's funny that you say that because um, that was not my writing voice um, previous to this year. I've always been. If you go back and read really? any of my old blogs, I was very, very inspirational or trying to be, but very serious. Um, and mm. I've only recently in this year, thanks to um, antidepressants, found my more like comedic and self-deprecating side, which has been really fun. Like that's not ever a side of myself that I've been able to access. That's all very new. Okay, wow. Um, but but I but I love it. I love it. It's um, great. I have so much fun all the time. Like I just make myself laugh constantly on my own, alone, talking to myself. <laughs> it's fine. It's totally normal and healthy. Is that, um, I mean, that's totally, that's totally a, like a fourth thing to do to just talk to yourself. The amount of fours that surely. I know that talk to themselves, like we are, we are just simply four-year-olds. Oh, absolutely. I mean, just overwrought imaginations. I mean, I don't know about you, but like I have whole conversations with people you know how many times i've done this interview in my head <laughs> in my car it yeah well it comes off very organically good job Mason. <laughs> let's let's hope so because i mean there's there's been plenty of hours of just doing this interview um, oh my God. knowing very well it. that it it certainly could go a completely different way <laughs> That's amazing. So yeah, it'll be, it'll be a lot of that. Um, and I really, I feel like a lot of the Enneagram resources that are out there right now are either very academic, which is awesome. And I love, right. um, but maybe not accessible for like the average reader. And then there are, um, then there are like the very evangelical Christian resources that are out there. So, um, what I want is to kind of access my both like the intersection of millennial and the ex evangelical crowds that I kind of right. um, interact with. And um, I, I do really think that the Enneagram is, um, is a means to healthier spirituality. And I, and I could go off about that, but um, that, so there will definitely be those, be those aspects as well. Um, but yeah, it's just basically the Enneagram for our generation. So for queer folk, for activist folk, for um, the the marginalized and the people who don't belong and- um, Those yeah, with a lot of for, debt. Yeah, yeah, those too, <laughs> definitely. The, the, the avocado oh, connoisseurs. The avocado toast eating, the not house owning, yes. <laughs> those folks uh-huh absolutely
Um, besides reading your book in Wingdings font, what surprised <laughs> you the most when writing this book? Um, so I'm in the process of writing it. Okay. Um, so still, we're like, still well, some yes. words left. We're the, oh, many words left. <laughs> we're like right in the trenches right now. Ooh. Um, I mean, it's been exciting because this is not the book that I plan to write right now. Um, I actually, I've been working on a book about the 10 lies that I had to unlearn from evangelicalism to become my true self, mm-hmm. um, which I think will be good, but it, it's very serious. And a lot of it is stuff that I'm still kind of working through. So, um, so it's been fun to just kind of fly by the seat of my pants and be like, here's something that I know a lot about. And I really love connecting with people and telling you how to live your life better. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's, it's been fun that that is okay. And it doesn't have to all be like this huge, serious, creative, like get deep in my head and not do anything endeavor. So, yeah, but definitely in the trenches right now. This is my first like full length book and I'm very nervous and it's going to be fine. It's going to be great. I know <laughs> how everybody's super stoked about it. Okay. Thank I you. on behalf I of everybody that. out there, all millennials, everybody's stoked. <laughs> Um, so, so we, we, we've kind of toyed around with, uh, with a lot of different ideas and conversations and topics, but we're going to go, we're, we're going to go into the dark space right now. We're, we're going to enter into 1940s Nazi Germany. Okay. Okay. Out of left field. I know it is. Um, yes. So, uh, as you probably know, Diedrich Bonhoeffer coined this idea or this concept of religionless Christianity. Um, Mm. and, and I've kind of toyed with that concept and with, with my concept of religionless church. Okay. Yeah. And, and so what, whatever, as little or as much as you know about Bonhoeffer's concept or with whatever comes to your mind when you hear those words, religionless Christianity or religionless church, how do you, uh, see your work that you've done in, in your writing, uh, on Twitter with with church too, whatever it might be that you see your work, how do you see your work speaking to or informed by or connecting to the ideas of religionless Christianity or religionless church? Hmm. Interesting. There's a lot there. There, Um, Sorry. Sorry for all the. (laughs) Um, so I think when I hear religious religionless church and, and I, I spent a lot of time reading and learning about Bonhoeffer, but definitely in my more evangelical um, years. So I would love to go back and um, yeah, as as he's often co-opted to be. I know he not... doesn't even belong there. Little do they um, know that he was part of the whole Death of God uh, world <laughs> in the '60s. Like, oh like... my God, no kidding. So, um, yeah. So religionless church. So I guess for me, um, just speaking from a purely personal standpoint, um, religionless church for me has looked like burning it all down. Mm. Um, I just, I have torn down every doctrine that I once held dearly Mm -hmm. um, and just kind of 
examined it and thrown it all out, um, completely expecting to be a dyed-in-the-wool atheist Mm -hmm. at this point. Um, And it's been interesting to watch the way that um, my faith has resurfaced. um, And and that's definitely still in transition, but um, in a way where I feel like um, the tenets of Christianity, you know, the gospel, being good news, and um, for the poor and for mm-hmm. the marginalized and for the outsider, right. um, which is a concept that we fours love. Um, <laughs> I, uh, all of that has kind of resurfaced, um, communing with the Holy Spirit in, in nature and in my interactions with other people, all of those all of those things that were what I loved about the church and about Christianity have begun to resurface for me in ways that I did not expect them to. Um, I don't have, what I don't have anymore are the, um, are the rules, are the um, legalistic standards by which I must um, behave or fit myself. Um, And, you know, I'm, I, I, in some ways, sometimes I think I shouldn't have thrown the baby out with the bathwater. And then sometimes I think, you know, I, I kind of have to decolonize my mind, Mm -hmm. um, from white supremacist capitalist Christianity and what is resurfacing is what was always true about, Mm. um, about me and about my faith and about my interaction with the divine, um, and that is honestly, that's kind of, I'm literally having this, um, epiphany as I'm talking to you about it. Um, those, those were always the reasons that kept me in the church is because I could feel God when I interacted with other people, when I showed them my truest self and they showed me theirs. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always, um, experienced the divine, um, in nature. I feel like, um, I feel like I can just walk outside on a starlit night and just like talk to God, whoever that is. Hmm. Um, and she appreciates that conversation, by the way. I think so. (laughs) Um, and yeah. And, and in, in the dismantling of injustice, I find, um, religionless church. I mean, there's, it's interesting because, um, I'm such a heretic to like my former evangelical folks, but I'm like, y'all made me this way. Like (laughs) y'all gave me this passion for people and this passion for justice and, and love and empathy and compassion on a grand scale. Like that's the person that I've always been. Um, but now I'm able to do it more freely. Um, Mm. and so, um, it's definitely a continual, um, a continual discovery and, um, and find, I'm always finding ways that I still need to be, um, decolonized, but, um, but yeah, I think those are the ways that I experience religionless church. Um, and I feel more, uh, 
I feel more in communion with, with the divine and with others. Um, you know, the whole love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Those are still the truest things about me. Right. So, um, yeah, I guess that would be how I experience all of that in a nutshell. So last question, uh, how can people get connected with you and and stay in contact with you? Yeah. Um, I, I recommend following me on, on Twitter. May, may I recommend that very much as well. (laughs) Um, it's Hannah and then H A N N A H posh P A A S C H, um, on Twitter, or you could probably just search garbage Oprah and find me. Um, (laughs) I'm the same on Instagram. I don't really use Facebook that much, but I'm there too. If you want to talk to me um, on Twitter, it should be my pinned tweet, but you can join my mailing list. So if you would be interested in um, throwing in an Enneagram question for the Dear Garbage Oprah column on my website, which is also hannahposh.com, uh, please do uh, join my mailing list. I promise not to spam you. I hate emails. I'll just send you one every once in a while when I have something cool to tell you and you could get a mug. I mean, I have Enneagram mugs, wonderful mugs, um, which are very, um, very exciting. So you can find all of that on my Twitter is probably the best space. Or if you go to hannahposh.com and, um, yeah, those are probably the best ways to, to keep up with me. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much again for hanging yeah. out, chatting. This has been wonderful. Uh, we'll we'll catch you on the flip side. Okay. Uh, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank wonderful. you. How great is Hannah? She is simply the best. I wish you would have been able to see the passion in her eyes as you watched her talk about the Enneagram and her spiritual journey and the Church 2 movement. I mean, she really de- does deeply care about all the work that she's doing. So as I said in the intro, be sure to check out her work, get connected with her on Twitter. She is a blast to follow on Twitter. Simply the best. Also, how great was Bear success? They're really, really unbelievable. For those who know me really well, you all know how much I freaking love post-rock. And so when I first heard them, I was pretty skeptical because there's a lot of post-rock bands out there and a lot of them are not good. But they really have a distinctive element. I think that kind of heavy progressive rock element could really kind of distinguish them from other post-rock bands. So be sure to check them out. And also, be sure to check out my work. MesaMeniga.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at MesaMeniga and on Instagram again at MesaMeniga. Hopefully, I post snarky enough tweets and cool enough pictures for you to follow me on there. I would love to follow you too, so be sure to get connected with me. And I feel like a mom asking her children to do this chore again, but it's a chore that must be done. Please, if you're an Apple Podcast user, Give me, Religionless Church, a review. 
I want to hear what you have to say about Religionless Church. And I wouldn't mind five stars. Four stars will do. Three stars, okay. But five stars, that's the way to my heart. Ecclesial nerds, roll out!